It is great to be with you this morning again as we continue in our series uh, through the book of Exodus or these chapters in the book of Exodus. Um, We're considering the journey of the Israelite people as they leave Egypt on their way to the promised land. uh, And we're going to stop when they reach Mount Sinai. And as you can see, we've called this series Traveling Mercies. And the reason for that is one of the clear pictures we have throughout this journey is God's display of grace and kindness and mercy upon his people as they travel. It seems that they regularly and consistently witness God's mercy upon them as they go. And so far we've seen that in many occasions and in many different ways, uh, whether it was the physical provision of food and water, military victory as he guided them and they trusted in him, uh, wise and efficient leadership as we saw last week. Uh, the, The resounding message time and time again has been that God is providing for his people and he's showing them mercy on their travels. And we're going to see that again in today's passage in chapter 19 of Exodus. But we're maybe going to see it in a way that we wouldn't quite expect. See, today's passage might seem hard for us to get our heads around. We're going to be confronted with the reality of what it would mean for the people of God, the Israelites, and indeed us today. What it would mean for the people of God to follow and worship the holy God, the majestic God, the powerful God, the set-apart God and in some ways, the terrifying God. As I introduced our series a few weeks ago, I spent some time reflecting and outlining why studying the Old Testament is such an important part and and such a valuable thing for 21st century Christians to do. Yet studying the Old Testament is something that many of us struggle with. And one thing that I mentioned for that struggle is that many of us are tempted to to veer away from the Old Testament because of passages a bit like this one. Um, And that's because these passages show us the stark reality of the holiness of God, the the otherness of God. And and for some of us, it seems strange. Maybe we're not used to considering God in this way. Maybe we're more familiar with thinking of God's love and care, his compassion, his kindness, his gentleness, his patience. And of course, all of those characteristics of God are right and true, absolutely. But perhaps we hesitate when we come to think of God as completely just, as as totally pure, as majestically holy, as we see in these words. And perhaps we hesitate in thinking of God in those ways, Because when we do, we realize how incredibly far we fall short of that kind of standard. And and therefore, we fear we will never be worthy to be in the presence of a God like that. And in many ways, that's exactly the point. As we see in this chapter today, based on our own merit, we are not worthy to be in his presence. His intense holiness, his unblemished purity, they're They're dangerous for those of us who are sinful. There's no way for the two to coexist, sinful humanity and holy God. And yet one of the glorious truths of this passage, which resounds throughout Scripture, is that God, the holy God, is the one who initiates a way. He is the one who steps down, not in the sense of lowering his standards to make his people acceptable to him, but in such a way that draws them up. In a way that means their filthy rags can be exchanged for gleaming garments of white. And maybe you can already see the allusions to Jesus Christ. 
how he is the embodiment of what this means. He is the embodiment, the full and final way for humanity to be made right with this holy God. We'll consider this more as we contemplate our time around the Lord's table later. But but for now, as we consider the holiness of God in Exodus 19, we need to be careful to hold things in tension. See, already I've mentioned the the potentially fear-inducing image of God's holiness and then his gracious salvation plan in Jesus. But those two things are not mutually exclusive. As I mentioned in week one of these series, we do not see the holy and fearful God in the Old Testament and then the gracious and saving God in the New. That distinction does not exist. We have one God, both in the New Testament and in the Old. And in both of those Testaments, in all of his scripture, we see his holiness and we see his grace. So in Exodus 19 here, we will see his holiness making the mountains tremble And then we see his gracious provision of boundaries and limits to keep his people safe. In the New Testament, we see his wrath and his judgment being fully satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore, making it possible for the offer of forgiveness and mercy and grace. I say all of that um, because as we spend time in these words in Exodus this morning, it might be beneficial for many of us to get a fuller understanding of the holiness and the power of God. It, it, it could be possible that, we, that we've minimized that aspect of God's character because it seems a bit less palatable. However, if we do that, if we minimize our understanding of the holiness of God, or if we don't grow in our understanding of the holiness of God, then we're not enjoying the fullness of how God has revealed himself to us. And if we minimize the power of God's holiness, then we're at real danger of not taking our own sinfulness seriously enough. And if we're at risk of that, then we're, we're at risk of not fully and, and wholeheartedly appreciating the grace that God has offered, the salvation plan that he has offered, and therefore responding to it in the thankfulness and in the fullness that it deserves. And so with all that being said, let's let's turn again to these words in Exodus 19. Uh, and we'll focus on the, the holiness of God. We'll see that in the second half of the chapter. So we'll get there in a few minutes. But let's take a quick walk through the early part of this chapter first. And so the chapter begins with this brief introduction to lead us on from where we left it last week. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that the people have now moved on from Rephidim, where they had been since the start of chapter 17. Uh, Last week, remember, we saw uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, come to visit and to give some advice on how the people could be led. And now we are told that they move on from this place and they reach the foot of Mount Sinai. And I find it interesting that even in those two verses, we're told that they're in a desert three times in two verses. So they came to the desert of Sinai, they entered the desert of Sinai and they camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And I wonder, is that just a, a bit of a hint back to the last time these people were in the desert? where we saw them complain and grumble. But they've been through a lot since then, and I wonder how they will now react. And so we see uh, at the start then that this introduction has been set. The people are in the desert. And then in verse 3, we're told that that the story moves on. And so Moses uh, shows again, or we're, we're given an insight again into this incredible relationship, this dialogue that he has with God. And so in verse 3, we see then Moses went up to God 
and the Lord called to him from the mountain. There's a, a wonderful sense of the dialogue here, isn't there? Moses goes up to speak to God. God speaks with Moses. Uh, and this dialogue takes place up the mountain. And so verse 3 starts this uh, almost bizarre uh, setting of going up and down, coming and going up the mountain. Indeed, in this chapter alone, we're told that Moses goes up and down at least three times. In the chapters that follow, he makes another couple of trips up and down. Uh, but all of these ups and downs, they enable that dialogue between Moses and God to take place. Uh, the conversation between Moses and God individually almost, but then also the conversation that God is having with his people through Moses. Uh, and so we're given this wonderful picture that Moses has a, a unique access to God. He, this, the role that he has as mediator between God and his people is becoming clearer and clearer as their journey goes on. It has been really significant, that role. It will continue to be so in the chapters that follow. Um, but getting back to the passage, let's specifically read this first dialogue between God and Moses. And so let's read verses 3 to 6. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. What what amazing promises from God. You will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You, the Israelites, will be God's chosen people. What a great promise. And, and of course, for the Israelite people, this would not have sounded like a new promise. This was indeed an echo, a, a reaffirmation of what God has already promised his people. And way back in Genesis 12, again in Genesis 15, when God calls Abram and there he makes these promises with him that Abram would be the father of a great nation, that he would have descendants as numerous as stars in the sky, that that nation would inhabit a, a specific area of land, the promised land, which of course the people in Exodus 19 are now on their way toward. And so the Israelites here are getting a reminder from God that, that he is the God who keeps his promises, that he made his promises generations ago before Egypt, before slavery, and he is still keeping them. He is still their God. He hasn't forgotten his promises. But let's think briefly about the context of that promise and, and how it's set in these verses here, because some of us may have picked up on verse 5. And so verse 5 we read, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then the promises will be, will be yours. And, and we may begin to question, does this mean that God's saving of his people, God's blessing of his people is conditional on their behaviour? Well, it's an important question to get our heads around. And, and we tried a little in our introduction to deal with that kind of question. But you see, what we mustn't do is read verse 5 without reading verse 4. You see, there God says to his people, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, verse 5 continues. So, so God's reminding his people of the great work that he has done in rescuing them and saving them and bringing them from Egypt. He has lifted them out. He's carried them on eagles' wings. He's brought them to himself. The, the saving work, in a sense, has been done. Grace has been shown. And verse 5 is therefore a response to that. And in fact, it's made a little bit clearer in, the, in how the ESV translates that phrase, which verse 5 starts, Now therefore, if you in, will indeed obey my covenant. 
And so you can see the emphasis is on the obedience that's being called for is in response to it. It's on the basis of what God has already done. In other words, in in response to that saving work of God, these people's lives should be marked by a loving and willing obedience to the God who saved them. And if they follow his ways, they will experience this great fruit of the promises that he's made. If they don't, then, then they'll not experience that fruit. They'll profoundly miss out on the life that he has called them to, the life he wants them to live. The life, yes, of, of service and sacrifice, yes, but service and sacrifice to the God who has lifted them out, the God who has carried them on his wings, the God who has brought them to himself. It's ultimately a life that, that leads to fullness. And then, of course, this then leads us to, to verse 6. We've seen that the logic so far has been God displays his grace, he saves his people, the people follow his ways, they obey his commands in response to knowing his saving power. And then we're, we see in verse 6 they're given a new identity. In verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And per- perhaps that sounds like a familiar phrase, maybe one you've come across before. You may well know that phrase uh, from 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Um, Alan alluded to that last week where the, the apostle is clearly borrowing language here from Exodus 19 as he writes to the Christians in the first century. But, but what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What does it mean to be a holy nation? And what does it even mean to be holy? Can human beings be made holy? We'll see that again in First Peter 1 in a second. Once again, I was helped in, in my understanding of this, uh, of these questions by Paul Williamson, who writes these words. Israel was to be a holy nation, a nation set apart for God, living among the nations, yet distinct from the nations. If you like a nation in the world, but not of the world. On the basis of their relationship with Yahweh, Israel was to be different from the surrounding nations. You see Paul bringing out that reality. On the basis of what Yahweh has done, their lives are marked by difference. As the subsequent laws make clear, Israel was to be socially and ethnically distinct from other nations. As God's holy nation, Israel was to reflect the holiness of Yahweh himself. As we saw alluded to in verse 4 and 5, the the lives of the Israelite people were to be transformed in response to the goodness of God that they've seen. And now we see what this transformation looks like. Those who are saved by God are then to live in God's way. They're to reflect his holiness because he is holy. Think of it in light of these words from 1 Peter 1 verses uh, 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, which is a quotation from Leviticus. And so you can see the logic again here in light of his grace in light of his grace. And then Peter even says, as obedient children, we are, we are welcomed into the family of God. Therefore, imitate the Father. Be holy for he is holy. If I could put it this way, God's saved people are to live in such a way that speaks of the God who saved them. God's saved people are to live in a way that speaks of the God who saved them. 
now that's a, a topic and a direction of thought that in some ways we're going to have to leave all bundled up like a ball of wool but I would encourage you to find the end and tug on that spend some time thinking about what that means what does it mean to be holy for I am holy as Yahweh says what does it mean for the people of God to live a life that reflects his holiness spend time considering what that means search through scripture to see where else that lesson is taught what does it mean for followers of Jesus in the 21st century that God saved people should live in such a way that speaks of the God who saved them. Is that true in my life? Would my close family, my friends, my colleagues, would they say that? Would they know that? Is it true of us as a community of believers here? How do our neighbours around us experience God's character through the way we interact? It's challenging to reflect on that, but goodness, what a privilege, what a responsibility we have to take this seriously as we witness for God in the places that he finds us and that he has placed us in. God's saved people should live in a way that speaks of the God who saves them. I think that's part of what it means to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. Let's move through this chapter because we're going to see now how the people respond to this call of God. And it's a wonderful couple of verses. We see this in verses 7 and 8. And so uh, Moses has brought the, this message from God to the people and they respond. It seems even with great joy they respond in verse 8. Um, sorry, in verse 9. Sorry, in verse 8. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. How encouraging, how uplifting. Of, of course, they're willing to surrender. They're willing to, to give their all to God because look at what God has done for them. They indeed know that God has brought them out of Egypt. They saw what he did there, they, that he has carried them to himself, that they, they have been born on eagle's wings. And so they have witnessed his, his mercy as they've traveled. So yes, they will do everything the Lord has said. Moses then brings that response back to God and God explains uh, to Moses that he will appear dramatically. And we see this in verse nine, that the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. This, this speaking that God is going to do with Moses is actually to give Moses credibility with the people. It's an, it's an incredible grace that God is giving to Moses. I mean, he has, Moses has struggled with these people so far. There's been stress and strain. There's been doubting his leadership ability. But now God is making sure that these people are in no doubt that Moses is God's man for this time, in this place, for this task. And it's a grace that God is giving to Moses. And then from verse 10, the, the focus turns to the preparations that the people are to make. Uh, before this theophany, this great manifestation of God will take place. Uh, and we may read this and wonder why there's so much detail given here. Um, we may even think that it seems a bit strange, but, but I think that this line of thinking, that, that not appreciating what is going on here and the preparations that are being made, it shows that I, that we maybe uh, don't fully grasp God's holiness like we should. You see, it's clear from all the preparations beforehand that, that the limitations um, that needed to be put in place were to protect the people from God's holiness. You see, God knew all too well the impact that his holiness could have on his people. His purity was, was dangerous for them, or, or maybe it would be more correct to say their impurity would be dangerous in light of his holiness. 
and, and this takes us back to what we mentioned earlier, that, that perhaps we've diminished or, or, or made small this aspect of God's character, this severe holiness of him. Perhaps we focused maybe too much, but focused on the gentle, approachable, compassionate heart of God. And we've done so to the detriment of understanding his holiness. Now, as I've said earlier, I'm not saying that God's gentleness, his approachability, his compassion are wrong. Absolutely not. They are as much a part of his character as his holiness. But if, we're to, if we fail to grasp the, the unending power, the, the wonder of his holiness, then we're not seeing his character in the fullness that he's displayed for us. And let's have a look at how that holiness, that, that power, that might, that strength, that complete otherness, let's have a look at how that's being displayed and going to be displayed here in Exodus 19. We'll pick it up in, in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Just can, can we try to picture that scene? Thunder, lightning, thick clouds, smoke billowing from this trembling mountain, loud trumpet blasts. No, no wonder the people were trembling. What other response was there? This sounds terrifying. But remember, this whole scene isn't just some kind of pyrotechnic show for the sake of it. This display of power and might and holiness should, should cause us to marvel at the God who's making this happen. But of course, this is the God who can make this happen. This is the God who, who made the mountain that was now shaking. He made the whole earth and everything in it. This was the majestic God who is appearing at this mountain. But this is not a God whose power and whose display of this power then makes him distant. This is not a God whose holiness means we can't approach him. See, look at how this account continues. And I was astonished at God's words to Moses um, in verse 21 and 22. Um, because again, they, we, show, we see the, the incredible love and the grace and the mercy that he has for his people. Let's, let's read from verse 20. The Lord descended to the top of the mountain, to the top of Mount Sinai, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Can, can you see God's concern for his people here? He knows the, the risk that their sin poses to them in the face of his holiness. And so again, he makes provision. He sets boundaries. He, he gives guidance. He graciously provides a way for them to be able to stand in his presence. And this causes Moses even to say, no, God, it's OK. You, you told us to prepare. We have set the boundaries in place. The people will not come forward. But, but it speaks of God's remarkable care, his, his mercy for his people, that in light of his holiness, he makes a gracious way. In light of his holiness, he makes a gracious way. And, and this points us to Jesus, doesn't it? 
This, this gives us a picture of the cross of Christ. That God who knows that his holiness and his justice means that we as, as sinful individuals, we, we cannot be in his presence. Uh, and therefore we're destined to spend all of this life and all of eternity separated from him. Suffering the penalty that we're, we rightfully deserve to pay for the sin that we have. That's, that's just. That's a just response to our sin. And yet God initiated a salvation plan that meant that his holy justice it would be fully satisfied and also his unending grace would be made known and there was only one way that that could happen that and that would be that if he took the penalty the penalty that we owe he would take it upon himself see we could we could never take it we could never pay that debt in a way that would then make us stand righteous before him so he paid it for us he sent his wrath fully upon his son Jesus as he died on the cross but of course that isn't the end of the story the story doesn't end with wrath Jesus rose from the dead showing that that he is greater than the enemy of death yes he has defeated the curse of sin for us and therefore he ascended to the right hand of the father in heaven where he now waits to come and judge the earth and in his gracious waiting he is giving us the opportunity, the time to know his good news, to, to accept his offer of forgiveness from sins and to live our lives in a way that he would intend us to, to, to share that good news with the world around us. This is indeed good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we should know wrath, but we know grace. Wrath fully satisfied in Jesus and therefore we know grace. And this is the good news that fully demonstrates the holiness of God and the mercy of God. As he did for his people here in Exodus 19 in the desert by showing them the power of his holiness yet graciously making a way for them to stay safe. So we see in Jesus the power of his holiness yet the gracious provision of a way for us to approach him, to know him, to be welcomed by him, to be adopted into his family, to have our our filthy rags exchanged for Jesus' righteousness. And therefore, we may know his presence. We may enter his presence. We may have his presence with us as his Holy Spirit indwells us and now we live every day in the strength of his presence. This is the wonderful story that we are part of. And so as we consider Exodus 19, as we think of the people approaching this trembling mountain with smoke billowing, may our eyes be expanded. May our vision of God's holiness be expanded as we see the power and the might. Our God is the same God. Our God has not changed. His holiness has not diminished. And yet, as we've seen in Exodus 19, he makes a gracious way for the people to be able to stand. And how much more so has he done that with us? That the wrath that we should know, the wrath that we should bear, he places on Jesus. So that we would then know not the wrath, but the righteousness. That Jesus' righteousness would now be clothed. That is now what I'm clothed in. Not the filthy, sinful rags that I should wear, deserve to wear, but no, they are stripped. And Jesus' righteousness is placed. And so I plead with you if, if you, if you don't know that good news for yourself, if you're, if you're not sure where you stand before this holy God, then would you know that he has lovingly reached out to you? He has sent his son to take the penalty of your sin 
so that you may know him as your loving father, as your holy God, as your righteous judge. But we would know him. We would be welcomed into his family. And so would you lay your life before him. Ask him to forgive your sins. Commit to living your life every day as a, a, a grateful and thankful sacrifice for what he's done. And for those of us who, who do know that gracious salvation, may we grow deeper and deeper in into him. May his spirit indwell more and more of us so that our lives are transformed, so that indeed as God's, as God's saved people, our lives would speak of the God who saved us. In our places of work, in our homes, as we move around our community, may indeed he be known among us, through us. Let's pray together as we finish our time in his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it challenges us. We thank you that it shows us a picture of you that is bigger than our minds can sometimes get around because you are bigger than our minds can ever comprehend. And, and Father, we confess those times where we've made you small, where we've tried to box you in, in a way that means we can understand and that we can comprehend your bigness. Lord, again, would you, would you cause us to stand in wonder? Would you indeed, Father, call us to fall on our knees in worship because of your greatness, because of your holiness? And Father, we thank you that in your holiness, you are not distant. In your holiness, you are not so separate that we can never know you or you are unapproachable. But Father, thank you that you have made a way. Thank you that in Jesus and only in Jesus, we may come into your presence. We may live our lives for you in the knowledge of your saving grace and in the presence and, and by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. We may live this life and we may know you for all eternity. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us your grace in these words. Thank you that your word is living and active. It sharpens us. It corrects us. And God, I pray that uh, for those of us who, who need to, to do a little bit more work, do a little bit more tugging at that ball of wool that we've maybe uh, started to unravel this morning would you would you help us to do that and in doing so father may we may we know you more may we come to love you more as we discover more of who you are of what you've done for us of your love for us so come we pray father equip us for the week that lies ahead as we seek to live these lives that honor you that glorify you help us father and may you receive all the honour, all the glory that is due to your holy name. And it is in that name that we pray. Amen.